All right, let's open up to Numbers this morning, Numbers chapter 1. We introduced the book of Numbers last week, looking at the overall theme of the book of Numbers. We said the overall theme of the book of Numbers was God's faithfulness versus the people's faithlessness, how the people, uh, Numbers is really a book about rebellion, how a whole generation rebelled against God, how they murmured against God, how their hearts were hardened against God, and because of that, God's judgment came where a whole generation, those 20 years and older, would not enter the promised land. And we saw that a lot of this emphasis of the book of Numbers is on the people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, So a whole generation uh, would die out before a new generation would arise. And that generation also included Moses himself. And we said that uh, in the midst of the story that's taken place, and there are many well-known stories, the um, the, the, brazen, the bronze serpent that's lifted up in the wilderness, uh, the 12 spies that go into the lands. There's a lot of familiar uh, stories and narratives here in the book of Numbers that we're familiar with, and our goal is to kind of put everything together and interspersed and intermingled in the stories and the narrative is the censuses that are taken. There's several censuses that are taken, the numbering of the people. Uh, We're going to go back into several laws. I know we'd hoping we'd be out of the laws after Leviticus. We still got some laws here in the midst of uh, the book of Numbers. Uh, And it's primarily dealing with the people traveling as God's presence moves. That's what a lot of the laws here in Numbers are about. Because what's happened is we've been camping at Mount Sinai for a year now after they've given the law and they've built the tabernacle. And uh, so we've, we've been at this mountain for a long time. But now God tells them, I've given you a tabernacle and I've made it portable. So you can take the tabernacle and pick it up and move it. And when they see the, the glory cloud, the presence of God lift off from the camp and move, they were to follow it. And as they went through the wilderness, as they traveled, set up the tabernacle, stayed there for how long they were going to stay, and then they packed it up and they moved again. These laws were to ensure that as long as God's presence was among them, uh, that the people were, again, holy enough and clean enough to be able to be around God's presence as they are traveling. So that's the reason for all of these laws that we'll look at today, some of those as, as they are traveling. So Numbers is a book of traveling. We're moving throughout the wilderness It's also a book of rebellion about the people. It's a book of um, God still being faithful uh, to his people as a whole. Uh, So a lot of fascinating stuff here in the book of Numbers. These first, we're going to cover the first 10 chapters today in Numbers. And some of this can be, you know, kind of tedious to work through. Uh, You know, on one hand, we've got all the genealogies that we love so much in the Bible and who all begat who all and all these lists that we saw back in Genesis and and the censuses are kind of the same thing. You know, we're reading about all of these people that are being numbered from every one of these tribes. And, um, but we'll see the importance of that as we go along. So the first chapter, as we look at the first chapter, this is the first census that is taken. There are two major censuses of all of Israel in chapters 1 and chapter 26 of the book of Numbers. Now we're going to see several more today as it concerns the tribe of Levi, which is the priestly tribe, the Levites. Uh, They have a couple of censuses there, and there are some minor counting of the people for specific areas. But as far as the whole, there's two major censuses, and that's in chapter 1 and chapter 26. 
Um, and that's what prompted uh, the English title Numbers. And why we call this book the book of Numbers is because of these, the numbering of the people. Uh, these two in chapter 1, chapter 26, they are uh, similar, but they serve different purposes. In chapter 1, the focus on why God numbers here the nation, specifically uh, all of the males of the nation, those chosen out of each tribe, is the imminent campaign for the conquering of the land of Canaan. That's what's in view here. Remember, the, I'm going to go back and the two major promises that God made to Israel is a great nation and numerous people and a land that He promised to them. And we've seen the numbering of the people of Israel grow and grow and grow and get bigger. And we're going to see it here that of all the, the males that were listed to qualify in the census, there were over 600,000, not counting the women and the children. So we see God's promise being fulfilled that this nation is becoming a large nation, a mighty nation. And now what's happening in Numbers, as we said last week, God is forming this large number of people into a mighty army that's going to go into a promised land to conquer in war the inhabitants that are in the land of promise, to drive them out of the land in what we call uh, the conquest of Canaan. So we're going to have lots of fun when we get to Joshua and talk about the conquest uh, of Canaan. Um, the focus is on, but the, this is the focus of the census, on the campaign to conquer Canaan. So the census here in chapter 1 lists all the men 20 and over, who are able to go to war. After the victories in the Transjordan in chapter 21, the narrative takes for granted that Canaan will be conquered. So the purpose of the second census is to see how much land would be allotted to each tribe based on their size. So there's two major censuses for two different purposes. The purpose we're dealing with today is this one of those who are 20 and over who are able to go to war. Um, according to the first uh, census here, of course, and when you start in chapter 1 uh, in the book of Numbers, the Lord speaks to Moses in the wilderness from the tent of meeting. In verse number 2 is when God tells Moses, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans of the Father's house, every male head by head from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. So again, that's where God gives Moses this instruction. Beginning with verse number 20 of chapter 1, we see each tribe that is broken down. You see in verse 20 is Reuben. Uh, then you, there's always the, the final number, 46,500 in Reuben. In verse number 22 of Numbers 1 is Simeon, uh, the total tribe of Simeon. Uh, all the males, 59,300. And then it proceeds on with Gad and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, um, Joseph, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, uh, Asher, Naphtali. All of those tribes listed a specific number. In verse number 44, in verse number 44, it says, These are those who were listed, who Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, twelve men each representing his father's house, so all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every male able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. And that is a really good size army uh, that Israel has amassed here in Numbers chapter 1. 
So back on our paper, according to the first census, 603,550 warriors in Israel over 20 years. Uh, the total in the second census is similar, assuming an equal number of females and perhaps as many um, under 20 as over 20 years old. The total Israelite population implied would have been about or a little over 2 million people that we're talking about. Now, how would you like to travel? I've traveled with three people before. Uh, <laughs> And trying to get luggage and kids and diapers and all this stuff. How would you like to travel with two million people through a wilderness? You know, you can't even pack them up in the car. You know, so can you imagine uh, traveling with this many people? Well, this is a large number of people, um, which historians and scholars, some people even speculate, you know, the historical accuracy of this number. Um, there are many that says this is such a large number and the resources and everything in the areas that they were traveling, you know, wouldn't be able to sustain this many people. So there are a lot of critical scholars that look at this number and they say, um, you know, that this is an unlikely number. And they've given many explanations on, you know, why they feel this may not be, you know, an exact number, um, but I think the, the point that we see here is while these scholars and conservative scholars that do believe this is a real number, you know, they have no problem accepting that, that you know, the natural land may not even have been able to hold them, but these weren't just the natural people. They were supernatural people, for they had God providing for them all along the way. Um, so, you know, in, in faith and in, in trust in what the Scripture says, it's not impossible for this number to be accurate, and there would be over 2 million people here in Israel. Um, but the whole point in the context is keeping in mind the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. The fulfillment of the promise of Abraham that the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be as numerous as the, the dust of the earth and the stars of heaven. Uh, so this is seen as you know, a partial fulfillment of what God had promised Israel and giving them a great nation. Um, and also they're going forth to conquer the land. So it shows them as a great army that's able to conquer the inhabitants of Canaan. One thing we find when we get down to verse number 47 through 54 of chapter 1 is the Levites are not listed in this census. The Levites were not listed in the census. That's because the Levites were a special tribe that were called out, of course, to be the priestly tribe. So the Levites were to have a special duty, and we'll look at those duties um, in a couple of chapters over. Um, but verse 50 of Numbers chapter 1 says, But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of testimony and over its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle when the tabernacle is set up. If you look down at verse number 53, just skipping ahead a couple of verses. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. So we're going to look in just a moment at the camp, the way the camp is set up. And the tribe of Levi is set up all around the camp to be a divider between the tabernacle and the people. And that's to protect the tabernacle, but it's also to protect the people so that nobody wanders out in the middle of the night and decides to mess with the tabernacle and God strike them dead 
That, that's literally the reason. Or no one bring an unclean thing where it's not supposed to be. You're an unclean person. Come near the tabernacle. So the Levites were like guards put around the tabernacle to make sure that nobody approaches it wrongfully and that they suffer the consequences in their death. Um, so he, and then when the nation would pick up and move, it was the Levite's job to take down all the tabernacle and to carry the furnishings of the tabernacle as well. So they were given a special task and a special place of the tabernacle so they were not numbered with the rest of the tribes of Israel. Uh, the details of their jobs are in chapters 3 and 4. So in chapter 1, you, you have the basic census leading up to 603,550 people. Going into chapter 2, this is the arrangement of the camp. Um, as a symbol of the central place to be given to the Lord in the life and the worship of the nation, the tabernacle was set up in the middle of the people. It was the central point of the camp. Because that's why we're on a big camping trip you know, with two million people. So when they set up camp, the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp. God was pleased to dwell among His people, and the people were, uh, were to always be aware of His presence. And of course, there's four sides to the tabernacle. So when you set it up, there's north, south, east, and west. To the east of the tabernacle, at the position of the greatest honor, were the living quarters of Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons. So the priests were set up immediately on the east side of the tabernacle, which is where the entrance was. Uh, the Levites were to set up camp on the other three sides as a buffer between the tabernacle and the other tribes, as we just talked about. The rest of the Israelites had to keep their distance from the sacred tent or they were facing death. The twelve tribes were arranged in four groups around the tabernacle. On the east side, closest to the entrance, was the tribe of Judah, which also contained the divisions of Issachar and Zebulun. And these are fellow sons of Leah. So it's interesting how the tribes are divided. They're really divided on who their mothers were. Uh, and that was to kind of keep the peace from any family rivalries uh, that would happen. Um, because they weren't all born of the same mother. They had you know, different mothers. So you had those that were born of Leah all together. To the south, there were the divisions of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Gad was a son of Leah's servant girl Zilpah and occupied the position that Levi would have filled. The other three sons of servant girls were situated to the, uh, to the north, led by the divisions of Dan. Meanwhile, the Rachel tribes camped near the west of the tabernacle. By this arrangement, a kind of unity in the tribes was achieved, a factor designed to reduce friction as the journey begins. So you had uh, the Leah tribe, the Rachel tribe, and then the servants tribe that were gathered around. And on the back of the first page is a outline, a picture of the tabernacle. So you see the tabernacle itself, the tent of meeting, was the central portion. If you look right over to the right or the east side of the tent of meeting, you see the word priest. That's where Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons lived. And then behind them, you have the tribe of Judah. Uh, even though Judah wasn't the oldest son, he wasn't the eldest son, Judah was given the place of highest honor in Israel. When we see the tribes going to march into war, Judah would lead them. Usually it would be the firstborn, but it's not the firstborn in this case, it is the tribe of Judah. We may wonder why it's the tribe of Judah as we're making our way through the Old Testament, but as uh, those of us that know the New Testament and the end of the story, we know that that's because 
Judah was the kingly tribe where David and Solomon and eventually Jesus would come from. So Judah is given a place of prominence on the east side. So on the east side of the tabernacle, which is where the entrance was, you had the priest to guard the entrance, Moses, Aaron, and his sons. And then you have the tribes of Judah, Zebulun, and Issachar there with Judah being the head there. Um, the south, you have the Levites of Kohath, the sons there, the son of Levi, Kohath, uh, with Gad, Reuben, and Simeon. Uh, then on the uh, west side, the left-hand side of the tabernacle, you have the Levites from Gershon, uh, from that son of Levi, with Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Then you have the Levites of Merari uh, on the north with Dan, Asher, and Nephtali. So this is how the tribes were laid out in the camp. So every time they had to move, they had a certain marching order. Uh, we'll get to the marching order next week. Um, but they had a certain marching order, and uh, then they would, when they parked, when they would set up camp, they would set up in this exact same arrangement each time. Uh, and that's what we're talked about in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, we're talking about um, the arranging of the camp. In chapters 3 and 4, we go back to the Levites. Specifically, um, we start out here in chapter 3 in the first four verses uh, with the sons of Aaron who would serve as priest. Now, Aaron had four sons. Uh, two of them we've already talked about, and they have already sadly left the scene, and that is Nadab and Abihu, who brought strange fire and presented it before the Lord back in uh, uh, what was it, Exodus that they did that, and they were uh, struck down uh, of the Lord there. Uh, so then you have two more sons here, Ithamar and Eleazar, uh, here, and they served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. So that's who would be in the priestly tribe just to the east of the tent. Moses, Aaron, and Eleazar, and Ithamar, there we find there. Beginning in verse number 5, we have, um, in verse number 5 of Leviticus, I mean of Numbers 3, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near. And set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him, over the whole congregation, before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting. They shall keep guard over the people of Israel, as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel." So this tribe was specially called out and given to God, given to Aaron for the priestly service of the tabernacle. If you look down in verse number 11, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn. Now here's where things just are going to get a little dicey. You, you, you can get called up in the in the details and hate to say the weeds, but kind of in the weeds of everything that's going on here and have a little bit of, of navigating through what's going on because there's so many tribes listed. There's so many censuses. There's, you know, we talked about the Levites first. Now we're jumping back into uh, the Levites again. And um, so, of course, the Levites were in the religious tribe. Uh, Aaron and his sons were the priest who offered sacrifice. The other Levites had a dual function, on one hand, they acted as religious police, guarding, preventing unauthorized uh, laity from entering the tabernacle. 
On the other, they were responsible for dismantling, carrying, and re-erecting the tabernacle wherever it moved. This was a highly responsible and dangerous task uh, because at any moment you have to do it exactly right. If not, you'll face judgment. All right, so here's the principle before we start in this chapter 3 because I want to make it simple because of what's going on here. If you remember back in Exodus, the death of the firstborn, God decreed that all the firstborn belonged to him. All the firstborn belonged to him. Um, In Exodus chapter 13, 12, and 15, all the firstborn were his. Uh, And you remember on the night of uh, the Passover, he told his people to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the sides of the doors. And when the death angel passed through Egypt, the firstborn would, would be required from every household. Well, that resulted in the death of the firstborn of all of those in Egypt, but it resulted in the salvation, the safety of the firstborn of Israel. And because of that, God declared that all of the firstborn children in Israel belonged to Him. That means they were dedicated to Him. They belonged to His service uh, to use. So, theoretically, every firstborn male born in Israel here, should have been separated from their families and given to the service of God out of every tribe. Everybody get that. What should happen is every firstborn male from all the tribes were to, should have came out and been dedicated to God, serving in the tabernacle, uh, doing the work of dismantling and mantling and building up the tabernacle. But instead of the firstborn of every tribe and every household uh, being given to the Lord for this service, God says, I'm just going to choose one tribe, and I'm going to dedicate that whole tribe as a substitute for the firstborn of all the other tribes. So they, the Levites here and the firstborn of the Levites acted as a substitute, as a stand-in for the rest of the nation of Israel. So that's why God says here in verse number 12 of Numbers 3, that's why God says that's the setup. Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all of the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel. Both of man and beast, they shall be mine, I am the Lord. And the Lord spake to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the sons of Levi by fathers' houses and by clans. Every male from a month old upward you shall list. So now we're having another census, okay? And this census is specifically of the Levites, the males who are a month old, and upward. The sons of Levi, by his father's houses, by clans, every male from a month old and upward. And this is because these males would serve as the substitute for the rest of the nation. So there were, again, three sons here. Verse 17, list them Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Uh, that are the sons. So you have, in verse 21, you have Gershon, and the number there listed, Kohath, you have the number there listed, Merari, you have the number there listed. Okay, Verse 38 of Numbers chapter 3, 
those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of the meeting, toward the sunrise, were Moses, Aaron, and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself and protecting the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was put to death. All those listed among the Levites who Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males a month old, so this census of the males a month old and up, were 22,000. So we have 22,000 male Levites a month old and up who were to be used as a substitute for the rest of the firstborns. Um, Chapter four, or verse number 40 of chapter 3, now he says, list all the firstborn males of Israel, a number a month old and upward. So now they're going to go through Israel and have another census of all the firstborn males of Israel. And you shall take the Levites from me instead of the firstborn. Verse 43 says, all the firstborn males according to the number of names from a month old and upward were listed as 22,273. So the number of all of the firstborns of Israel, month old and up, 22,273. The Levites, who were their stand-in, is listed here in verse 39 as 22,000. So you see, it's almost a one-for-one ratio. But there were 273 that would not be accounted for or have a substitute. So... What happens? You see why I said you can kind of get lost in the weeds and the numbers and what's going on here? I was scratching my head trying to figure all this out too. Um, so then the, the other 273 left. Uh, it says down in verse number 49, um, Moses took the redemption money, so a price was given that they could be redeemed by paying a price. And that's in verse 47, five shekels per head. So if they paid the five shekels, then they could be redeemed and everybody's covered. All the firstborns are covered in the nation. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. So now, okay, can I just say this? I don't know why God has to make everything so complicated uh, in these books. I mean, this is, this is really complicated. It's like, you know, if we're... I don't know. I don't want to say too much, but I'm like, this is you know, so detailed, you know, and so precise. And to me, it's like, why? But every first male had to be covered by a Levite or they had to be redeemed. Uh, so that's why we're going through all this. Okay, So everybody's covered. 22,000 by a Levite that represented them and not you paid the redemption price of five shekels and then the rest were covered. So 22,273 were covered. And that's what takes place in chapter 3 in numbering the firstborn Levites and the firstborn of Israel to make sure everybody's covered uh, so that this tribe would serve God in the tabernacle on behalf of all of the other tribes. Can I throw another monkey wrench in? Um, yeah, let me, let me throw another, another monkey wrench in. Um, the tribes of Gershon, the tribes of Kohath, and the tribes of Merari are listed uh, in their total number. And this is something that I've Every commentator, everybody tries to come up with. Well, if you were to add, if you notice, this, we'll just do some fun math. In verse 22 of chapter 3, if you notice in verse 22 of chapter 3, all right, I'm going to get my calculator out, all right? Chapter 22, verse 22, I'm sorry, of chapter 3, all the males from the tribe of Gershon, a month old and upward, were 7,500. 7, 
Now, in verse 28, this is Kohath. According to the number of all the males, a month old and upward, there were 8,600. Verse 33 begins Merari. And verse 34 says, the listing according to the number of males from a month old and upward was 6,200. When you add those three together, you get 22,300 people. But the number listed in verse 39 is an even 22,000. And we don't know why this is. And there's no commentator that knows why this is. Um, you know, and, that, and this little things like that that kind of make us wonder and scratch our head. Um, because if it was 22,300, it would have covered every male. But it's listed 22,000 instead of 22,300. When you add them up, it's 22,300. But the official number here in verse 39 is 22,000. And obviously it is 22,000 because of the extra redemption price that had to be paid for the extra 273. Um, so I've tried to you know, go through commentators and there's no known reason of why there are two different numbers here listed. Um, we just don't know why there's two different numbers listed when you add them up versus what is stated here in chapter 39. Um, but we officially go with the number of 22,000 because that's what the rest of the chapter lays out with the extra 273 that had to pay the redemption price of five shekels. So that's one of those things, you know, some people just call it a flat-out contradiction. Um, you know, if we're trying to defend the inerrancy of Scripture, you know, it's kind of bad to admit there's a contradiction. Um, you know, could it be a scribal error somewhere along the way? Uh, we don't know. Uh, there's just every excuse you could find of trying to harmonize these two numbers. So I just throw that out there for uh, pondering purposes, uh, to, to ponder that. Maybe you can go and research and find the answer and bring it back to us. Um, chapter 4, we'll go through chapter 4 real quick. That lists the duties of the Kohathites and the, uh, the other sons of Levi. And then we have another census, okay? In chapter 4, we have another census and the duties of these three sons of Levi. This census is for those 30 years old to 50 years old. So now they have to count everybody from 30 to 50. All the firstborns had to be covered. Now that the firstborns are covered, we have to find out who's available from the tribe of Levi, strong enough and able enough to carry the furniture of the tabernacle. That's basically what this is. You know, we are, we're calling out, hey, everybody in church, we need everybody from 30 to 50, you know, to come and help us take down tables and chairs. And this is basically what we're doing. Uh, so everybody 30 to 50 from the Levites had to be counted and numbered so they know who was able to take down poles, curtains, furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And each one of the three sons uh, from Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, uh, each one had jobs and duties. So in chapter 4, uh, you have the numbering and the duties of each of the sons. Um, let me see, on our paper, the sons of Kohath, down at the, uh, near the bottom of the page, where it says chapter 4, the sons of Kohath camped on the south side. They were to take care of the furniture of the tabernacle, like the Ark of the Covenant and the altar. The sons of Gershon camped on the west and were to take care of the fabrics 
associated, the curtains and all the uh, fabrics that went over the tent and the veils and all of that. Merari's sons camped on the north side and were in charge of all the structural components, the tents and the poles and the pillars uh, and the rings and all of those things. So chapter 4 just describes the number of able men to carry all this and what they were to carry. Someone's in charge of coffee. <laughs> Somebody has to be. I need a traveling coffee shop with me with two million people. <laughs> I'm gonna say what I was gonna say. Okay. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, so that's our censuses. So we're out of the censuses. All right. So we saw a census of all of the people able to go to war. We saw the census of all the firstborns of Levi and of the nation. They're all covered. Then we saw the census of all the able-bodied people from Levi who were able to carry all of the equipment. That's a lot to go through when you're digging through all this. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff there in, in numbers. So, so the good news is we're done with the censuses. Yay. The good news is now we get to go into laws again. So yay, we're going from, from good to better uh, here. And we're going back to uh, some of the law. Again, chapter 5 begins with... Uh, certain laws for certain types of uncleanness. Because again, God is holy, people are sinful, and as we're traveling, we want to make sure things are clean. We want to make sure that we're keeping the law. We want to make sure we're not uh, breaking commandments. So there are three major uh, issues listed here in Numbers chapter 5. The first has to do with people who are unclean. Now, if you remember back in Leviticus, uh, unclean was if you came in contact with a dead body, if you came in contact with bodily discharge, um, things of this nature. So the first part deals with those who are unclean, uh, that they become clean. On the, um, on the third page, or second page, the last page of our notes, uh, you see here three issues taken up in chapter 5. Number one is the case of uncleanness. And basically is that there are those unclean in the camp. They need to go outside of the camp so as not to pollute the camp. So we have to deal with uncleanness again, making sure we're dealing with that. Uh, the next one resolves um, uh, by breaking faith with your neighbors, unresolved disputes over property. Um, so if there's undissolved disputes or somebody goes back on their word, somebody steals, somebody... Um, yeah, who does somebody wrong. Um, you have to, there was a confession of the sin that did wrong. There was a full restitution of what was done and then add a fifth to it. So normalizing these disputes over broken words and promises and describes as broken faith in one translation. And then the third one, uh, this, is an, this is an interesting one too, uh, the test for adultery. Um, so the third one that begins in verse number 11 of chapter 5, uh, like murder and idolatry, adultery calls the most sincere form of uncleanness. So even the suspicion of adultery had to be cleared up. So they have a way here of determining if a woman had committed adultery, thus causing herself to be unclean and her husband to be unclean, or whether she didn't. So if you suspected, uh, they call it here the law in cases of jealousy. Uh, so if I'm suspecting my wife to commit adultery and I become jealous, then I take her to the priest and they perform a ceremony with water and mud and 
pronounce a curse over her. She has to make a vow. And if she's telling the truth, she'll be spared. If she's lying, she's under a curse and bad things are going to happen. And you're gonna, everybody's going to know that she committed adultery. Uh, that's a fascinating read if you want to go through and read all of that. Um, you got to put dust in water, untie her hair, bring her, sit her before the priest. Um, there's all kinds of things for a test if this woman has committed adultery or not. Uh, the end result, if she did commit adultery, then it would cause her bitter pain, her womb would swell, her thigh would fall away, and the woman would become a curse. If she told the truth and she didn't commit adultery, then she would be fine and could go off and have children. So uh, that's what that's about, a test of adultery. Again, preventing uncleanness in the camp. Uh, because even unintentional uncleanness can have very intentional consequences, as we found out here in uh, the, under the law. Correct. The only time the man is brought up... Yes, th- this is dealing with... The woman. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to find out. Verse 12, Speak to the people of Israel, if any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually, it is hidden from the eyes of her husband. She is undetected, though she has defiled herself. and There is no witness against her, so she was not taken in the act of adultery and the spirit of jealousy. So yeah, it doesn't mention a consequence for the man she committed adultery with. You know, and to me, I'm also kind of reminded here of Jesus with the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. The man wasn't brought there either, if you notice. Uh, She was brought before. Uh, And, you know, that has connection with this as well. This is if you suspect or if you're suspicious of your wife, the lady caught in Jesus' day was actually caught in the act of adultery. There was no... Doubtless she was guilty, uh, but we see Jesus entering in there uh, and not condemning her there as well. But yeah, that is a good point that this is all about the woman. It's not about the man she commits adultery with. Uh, just goes to show you the times, the times, the times. Um, chapter number six uh, deals with what we call the Nazarite vow. We've all probably heard of the Nazarite vow, Samson and you know, Samson and Delilah, Samson was a Nazarite. A Nazarite were those who would take a special vow to the Lord to live a super separate life in order to dedicate themselves to God. Uh, the Nazarites were the holiest lay people in ancient Israel. The priests, remember, the priests had to live up to a standard of holiness, the Levites. And if you took a Nazarite vow then you were the holiest of all lay people in Israel, the Old Testament equivalent to monks or nuns is basically what it is. To become a Nazarite, you took a vow to abstain from all forms of alcohol or grape products. You took a vow to never cut your hair. Of course, Samson is best known, Nazarite in the Bible. Uh, Number six deals with the situation that would occur if such a holy person became polluted through accidental contact with death and what must be done to remedy the situation. Uh, Chapters 5 and 6 are thus concerned with dealing with actual, suspected, or potential cases of uncleanness in Israel. Again, just showing the seriousness of protection against cleanness that it doesn't, or uncleanness that it doesn't mix 
with the cleanness of God or the, the unholy mixing with the holy that was a no-no. Uh, so all of this is to protect against either actual uncleanness, suspected uncleanness, or potential uncleanness in various circumstances. Uh, so that's what that chapter is about. It ends with the blessing in verse number 22 through 27, uh, the priestly blessing. Chapter 6 ends with, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Verse 27 says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Uh, chapter 7 through 8 is a story that includes a flashback to events a month earlier when the tabernacle was first erected. This records how the secular tribes gave the Levites wagons to transport the tabernacle in, how the tribes presented utensils and animals for uses in worship. Each tribe gave exactly the same. This stresses the equal standing of each tribe and their joint responsibility to support the worship in the tabernacle. Then the rites for the dedication of the Levites are described where the Levites were dedicated. Uh, these are much less complicated than the procedures of ordination of priests. Uh, throughout this section, Moses' role as a mediator of God's requirements and executor of his will continues to be stressed. The people do exactly what God asked them through the agency of Moses. So all of this is, again, preparing the people to, to leave by talking about the tribes, what they dedicated to the temple, how they all had a part in making the tabernacle work. Uh, and they all played a part. Uh, then in chapters 9 and 10, um, it says, ready to go. We're getting ready to go in 9 and 10. This stress on the exact compliance with God's instructions. That is all we see over and over again. Exact compliance with God's instructions, doing it God's way, following God's pattern. Uh, continues in chapters 9 and 10. Chapters 9 and 10, the anniversary of the exodus from Egypt is celebrated. So in chapter 9, uh, you know, we're celebrating the Passover. We're remembering what God has done. Just as they had the Passover and they left Egypt, now they're celebrating the Passover in order to leave Mount Sinai. Uh, so they celebrate the Passover in Egypt, which will become an annual celebration for the people of Israel, as, as was decreed back in Leviticus. Um, the future of its celebration will commemorate the past. As mentioned here, implicitly reminds the reader of the intended destination of the Israelites. Not Mount Sinai, was, that was not the destination. Not of a desert, but the land of Canaan is the goal here. Uh, although it's of uttermost importance to celebrate the Passover, for sudden death may befall on those who fail to observe it. Uncleanness caused by death is an uh, obstacle to worship. So if you're unclean, if you were unclean during the time celebrating the Passover, you had to wait a month, and then you celebrated it on the second month instead of the first month if you were unclean. Um, after this, in chapter, last part of chapter 9, beginning with verse 15, we talk about the cloud of glory that covered, that became a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And it was when the people were, you know, when God was ready to leave, the cloud would pick up and move and the people would follow. And when it stopped, they stopped and they set up camp. So the end of chapter 9 describes this cloud covering the pillar of fire and cloud. And then in chapter 10, going through verse number 10, is the uh, instructions of the trumpets. They had silver trumpets uh, that signaled different times. When it was time to leave, a trumpet blast would sound. When it was time to break camp, 
a trumpet would sound. Uh, if you blew it one time, um, if both trumpets were blew together, all of Israel came out. If one trumpet was blown, then the leaders would come out. Uh, when there was an alarm, you had a certain blast. So this was, um, you know, they didn't have all alert systems or one call for everybody to hear. They blew uh, silver trumpets in order to signal to the people, you know, what was getting ready to happen. So all this is in preparation to begin to move to leave Sinai. So we've been at this mountain. We've seen the giving of the commandments. We've seen the giving of the tabernacle. Uh, we've seen the establishment of the priesthood. We have seen all of the laws in Leviticus establishing clean and unclean, the boundaries of the people. We see here the numbering of the people for war, uh, the, the preparing of the camp to move, and uh, the special place of the Levites as, as they travel. And all this is in preparation to make our march toward the promised land. So listen, everything is good right now, okay? We're established. We have, we're in order you know, we've come out of slaves. We've come a long way. What could go wrong, right? Right. Uh, so we'll find out what goes wrong uh, next week. 